Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Oh, we have this greener kind of future that 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 cannabis and the psychedelics promises. You know what I mean? And cannabis, in my mind, is the healing of the nations, the tree of life, man, the return of soma ioma, the world sacrament, and it treats us on so many levels. Welcome to the My Family Think Some Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and today we had a fantastic conversation with Chris Bennett. Joining me is my producer, Jay. How are you, Jay? Hey, who's Chris Bennett, Mark? Chris Bennett is the author of four awesome books. He's also behind the uh, cannabisculture.com go over there and check out some really great articles and uh, the books that he wrote are fantastic green gold the tree of life marijuana and magic and religion sex drugs violence in the bible cannabis and the soma solution and Liber 420 cannabis magical herbs and the occult which is what we pretty much talked about today you can find all of those books online if you search Chris Bennett on Amazon or if you go to trineday.com. Be sure to check out those books, man. I mean, they're affordable and they're very valuable. 777 pages of cannabis history that Chris compiled along with some speculation, a lot of references and resources. He cites his sources. He backs up the speculation with a lot of really great sources and uh, different points of information going back all the way to ancient times through to the 20th century. I mean, he covers a lot and uh, there's still more like you will hear. We talked about towards the end, a new book coming out about Aleister Crowley. So look forward to that. Adam, Jay, what did you guys think of this episode? What did you think of the conversation? Fantastic. Well, Jay. Adam, I mean, you you take edibles. You, you're getting high. I'm chill right now, okay? I'm so, chill. Like, That's why you, I'm very, you know, maybe I'm keeping my answers short. That's because I'm chill. Listen, right? we don't pay my intern, so it's okay. Listen, yeah, you He's don't pay unpaid. me like the celebrities where it's like a million a word. I, I, uh, I, I say one word, that's it. I just want you to 
put your heart into it for once, Adam. Well, okay, no, my heart is here. I'm just really relaxed, <laughs> okay? It's like my heart's not here, technically. So I guess you're right. Do we have any shout-outs, Mark? Shout-outs? Shout yeah. I yeah. Feel like Shout-out to shout Chris outs. Bennett, okay? This episode is completely out. dedicated to him, 100%. And people can go to www.myfamilythinksomecrazy.com and you can find out a lot of information stuff that we talked about today i'm gonna throw up there in the uh in the blog i wrote my first blog actually uh the day i talked to chris about having him on the show so there's already some information on there about chris but yeah every episode that we do we have a companion page on our website where i compile anything that i thought you might find interesting and wanted to look into afterwards i know when i listen to a podcast there's always something that i go and search if it interests me and sometimes it's you can't find anything so if i can help you find uh these kind of threads to get yourself into new research that you can maybe then subscribe to the patreon and tell us about because we're always looking for our patrons to give us some feedback you know we love our supporters we love our listeners we want you guys to support the show so we can keep doing this and putting this show out and part of that is by just sending us your thoughts i mean if you have a story you'd like to tell us if you have a conspiracy you heard about that you don't think is being broadcasted anywhere tell me about it i mean uh i always love hearing new things and meeting new people so please don't be afraid to reach out to us and the best way to get in touch with us is on patreon.com mftic you can subscribe there to the one, two, three, four, five, however many dollars you want to pay, and you'll get whatever rewards based on how much you decide you'd like to contribute. And we really do appreciate our supporters. I just sent four books out in the mail to two of our supporters who generously donated, and yeah, they got a couple books from my collection for that. So Thank you to anybody listening and checking out the Patreon. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Chris Bennett. So things are changing here. There's all sorts of craft cannabis starting. You know, first they just thought they could take over the industry, and then they, when they legalized it, with the cops and politicians that we've been arguing in the decade before, we're now all heading up. Uh, different uh, corporate cannabis uh, companies you know and they thought they were just going to be able to take it over but people continued in canada to largely buy underground uh, black market marijuana from the same people they were buying before legalization and this cause has caused a lot of these corporations to fold and lose millions of dollars for the community of the nations and when i read that i had this fucking experience I felt like light just fucking beamed into me and that this was a reference to cannabis and all these different fruits were its industrial applications that we could use to heal our planet and heal ourselves. And uh, I called my wife up and she thought I was having some sort of fucking breakdown. You know, and she started fucking bawling. The next day I go home and I wake up and I'm looking at all these clear-cut mountains and I'm thinking, 
was there anything to that or was I just fucking tripping out? And I thought, well, this hemp stuff, for sure, man, that's legit. And I'm going to start this group, Patriotic Cranes for Hemp. I'm going to start promoting hemp. And this is the first thing going here on the West Coast, right? Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. With us on the show today is author Chris Bennett. He's written Green Gold, The Tree of Life, Marijuana in Magic and Religion, Sex, Drugs, Violence in the Bible, Cannabis in the Soma Solution, and most recently, Lieber 420, which is a book I own. I've owned it for several years. It's a really great book. Lieber 420, Cannabis, Magical Herbs, and the Occult. So for those who aren't aware, there's a lot packed into this book. I mean, you start all the way back as far as the Bible and go all the way up to I mean, Freemasons and Rosicrucians. And uh, from listening to some interviews you've done, I heard that there's a whole section on the the 19th century occult, specifically Crowley, that you had to leave out because there was so much, right? So when's that book coming out? Is that book anywhere near completion? Uh, It'll probably be a year or two. It takes me a long time to do my books, right? Uh, um, But I'm still working on it. Actually, Libra 420, the, the first chapter I wrote on it, was a chapter about uh, Crowley and hashish that I didn't even put into the book. Uh, you know, when I started on Libra 420, I thought that there would be maybe a chapter or two of material that I would be able to dig up on the medieval Renaissance period, right? And then um, once I started digging into things and going through like Latin texts of the 16th, 17th century, I found all this material on, uh, you know, with direct reference, luckily cannabis is the same in Latin as it is in English, so you can search through these texts and find what's what, you know, and if you know a bit about historical figures, you can find it in, you know, people like Paracelsus or alchemists like Cardano and figures like that, right? And so I was able to just dig up so much material uh, from this time period that I just kind of covered the 19th century stuff, which I was planning on making most of the book on in really one or two chapters of the book. Okay. Well, I just wanted to get some real quick questions out of the way, just because we rarely have a, a, a stoner of such, you know, grand, like you've been smoking for how many years? I want to know, do you have a favorite weed and how, what's your favorite way to smoke? Obviously you got the volcano bag. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly I vaporize cannabis. I, you know, I used to smoke a lot. I like, I like the heavy indicas myself, you know, okay. and I, I'm going to be 59 this year. I started smoking herb at uh, 12 years old. So wow. it's been, been quite a while. Uh, um, but what drew uh, you to you it originally? Know, I find if I smoke a lot, I get a hack. So I prefer these volcano vaporizers and I've been using those since you know, probably since they came out in the early 2000s you know yeah was it friends family what drew you to cannabis at such a young age oh yeah i just you know seeing it around my school at first you know like uh, i found some weed in my brother's uh drawer and i was horrified my brother was using drugs you know and uh uh, then, you know, a little while after that, I found some classmates were using it and I even called one of them up and I said, this stops here, buddy. You know, I'm going to have to tell everybody and I have to turn you in, you know, and then I don't know what happened. Something must have happened when I was 12 there that flipped the uh, switch and got my curiosity going. And uh, I tried some. <laughs> that's that's almost identical to, to me because I, I was against it. I was on the wrestling team and then I found yeah. out. Bruce Lee was messing around with it. 
amongst some other interesting martial artists and i was like hmm and then all my buddies were doing it and yeah turned suit real quick (laughs) there's some interesting quotes from bruce lee about cannabis he really ascribed mystic qualities to uh hashish you know Uh, um, and you know really took it as as a real serious uh spiritual medicine yeah his his Tao of jeet kune do book i mean the first couple chapters is all about uh you know his personal philosophy before he even gets into martial arts and it's very mystical i think reading that book from a, a young age definitely set me down this path and i think it was maybe 23 or 4 years old i found your book and damn it just it really added a whole nother layer to it because I'd always had this feeling like there's something more to this you know you talk about paradigm shifts right Chris I've heard you talk about this kind of paradigm shift that cannabis offers us and I am a whole hearted experiencer of that exact thing you know I went from having almost conservative sort of like ideas of trying to join the military potentially at a young age and uh, atheist kind of tendencies. And then I smoke and all of that just seems so unreal and, and not good, you know? And, and I started, you know, this spiritual intuition kind of blossomed from there. And I almost had a nose for, for what was right and what was wrong. And that kind of led me into studying indigenous cultures a little bit and their use of, of drugs, peyote and so on. And and I'm, I'm wondering, what have you uh, you learned about cannabis and in indigenous cultures? Because there's some strains like the uh, Peruvian gold, and they have like this red uh, bud that supposedly comes out of somewhere in Central America. The uh, Acapulco gold is another one. So when do you think cannabis came to uh, America? You know, I, I, um, I, in my first book, you know, which I wrote like in 1995, Green Gold, um, I suggested some 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 evidence of uh, of cannabis. Some of that turned out to be wrong. There had been a news story about these pipes in Morrison, Ontario, five hundred year old pipes. That the news story had said that uh, uh, tested positive for can- cannabis residues as well as tobacco. And I, I repeated that. And then years later, you know, a lot of the stuff was before the internet. We were able to really look around and dig up more information on stuff, right? Uh, um, the archaeologist said, no, the reporter was, was, was mistaken. He, don't know, he didn't know how that had got in there, you know. And um, in the book uh, by Jack Fraser, The Early American Hemp Industry, he suggests a number of things because some of the early explorers uh, uh, suggest identified seeing hemp, right, you know. But, you know, they were, they were talking more about like fiber plants. These guys were botanists and things like that. There's definitely woven fiber plants. But uh, as far as like something taken from a museum, say, an artifact of, uh, of indigenous uh, material, you know, from, from pre-Columbus time, there's no evidence of actual cannabis, you know. And they do things like... Uh, you know, like we know a lot about cannabis and when it was growing and where it was growing through pollen samples out of the ground, going through different strata, which which identify different time periods. And there's no evidence of cannabis there either, right? You know, I generally think it came with the the with, with Columbus. Maybe some Vikings brought it. You know what I mean? There's some evidence of that, and Vikings definitely used cannabis and likely traveled with it because it was like a major commodity for seafaring nations, uh, caulking for boats, sails for, for boats, that type of stuff, right? 
so maybe there, but you know, that's not like millennia before. It's not like making it part of the things, but they had their own medicines and stuff for sure, you know? Yeah. And I kind of think there's like, you know, on, on the non-historical side, but on the spiritual side, I've, I've always thought that Black Elk's great vision was related to cannabis, you know, a spiritual sort of apocalypse of the Indians taking place during their ghost dance and Black Elk has a vision and a fever. And in the vision, you know, the, the buffalo, which was the, the standard of the, of the Plains cultures, and they used every part of the buffalo, you know what I mean? And uh, it rolls over and it dies, you know, and then a plant springs forth to replace it, start her. And uh, it's brought by the grandfathers. And I don't know why that made me feel so emotional all of a sudden, but it was brought by the fathers and stuff like that to earth to replace the buffalo. And I see what's happening with uh, cannabis in the indigenous cultures. They're, they're, they're the uh, industry growing out of it. And, it. and it's really enriching them, you know what I mean? And I think that's important, you know? And I think it's, it's something we can at least do to replace the crime of our ancestors in decimating the buffalo, which was the standard of their, uh, of their livelihood and existence. Absolutely, Chris. And I, I feel I resonate with that. You know, my heart goes out to indigenous cultures my whole life. I've, I've taken a lot of inspiration from the wisdom I've learned. And one of the biggest moments in my life was, was meeting a gentleman from an Arizona tribe. I don't know the exact name of the tribe, but who's related to Apaches. And, and this is kind of where that thought came from of asking you this, because he told me that cannabis and tobacco had been used by the um, Native Americans for thousands of years, you know, and yeah. this is obviously anecdotal, you know, he didn't offer much uh, well, proof of this. people have their cultural beliefs as different to me than um, solid archaeological evidence, not to of course, yeah. disclaim it, but for me to say that this was that, I'd need like solid archaeological evidence. There has but, been claims of, of mummies in South America, mummified uh, um, <clears throat> remains, they found evidence of cannabinoid use like drug testing the mummies right and vice versa in egypt of mummies there that tested positive for the new world plants tobacco and uh um what was the other one uh, coca coca, uh, yeah. cocaine, coca leaf. Well, but uh, there's a lot of debate about this right you know what i mean yeah. because that would mean that there was this whole period of uh cultural exchange between the old world and the new world you know thousands of years before before Columbus, and there's a lot of controversy about these claims. So they're not solid either because they're all based on things like biomarkers, which, which are just little parts of the molecules that are left over and residues, and things break down and change, and uh, uh, combinations of things can become mixed. You know what I mean? We're dealing with embalming fluids and things like that, right? So again, it's interesting research and compelling but not solid proof. And go ahead with your question. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, no, and I raised this because he he mentioned that, you know, and I know you kind of agree with this, that cannabis represents the divine feminine, right? This kind of goddess yep. energy. And what he told me was that when you smoke tobacco with cannabis, it kind of unites the masculine energy of tobacco with the feminine energy of cannabis. And, you know, considering that the archaeological evidence establishes that cannabis is, a, is an old world plant and tobacco is a new world plant. Do you think that there's, you know, maybe 
some truth to these prophecies and and what do you think of of people smoking tobacco with cannabis i'm not a tobacco you know smoker myself uh, um I, I like you know my mom died of of, of lung cancer and I have, I've got other family members you know that that have have had issues like that and, and it, you know so tobacco is is not you know this may be due to the chemicals in tobacco I don't know enough about it you know what I mean yeah. maybe the, the, I don't know what the if anybody's done a, a study on organic tobacco versus uh, um, the the chemical tobacco but the the tobacco that they have in cigarettes and stuff nowadays that's not what the indigenous people were smoking it's like so far away from what they smoked they smoked really powerful potent tobacco in a little tiny pipe that really had a more of a psychoactive punch to it than a cigarette right but uh, I'm not gonna you know I, I personally don't mix tobacco with it you know what I mean I, I don't tobacco is not my medicine that's for sure but uh, you know whatever people want to do you know what i mean try to do yeah. it with education and and whatnot and i don't want to diss on anybody's tradition no of course I, we and I, I hope the audience wouldn't take it that way because i certainly don't now considering the chemicalization of tobacco and what the industrialization of tobacco has done to the potential medicine of what that plant used to be what do you think of, of the uh, legalization of cannabis and, and this kind of embrace from corporations to start selling legal marijuana? Yeah, well, I'm in Canada and, you know, I think I bought like two joints of uh, cannabis and was like probably like four times what I pay for marijuana generally. And it's been radiated. And to me, like that radiated process, it just dries it out, takes something out of it, takes out whatever life's left in there, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's dry and it's not very good. So that commercial marijuana is not really a big draw to me. I think for me, I'm more of a connoisseur of cannabis where I'm looking for like high quality, quality cared for marijuana buds. And that's hard to do on an industrial scale, I think, uh, produce that that type of quality right so but uh you know things are changing here there's all sorts of craft cannabis starting you know first they just thought they could take over the industry and then they when they legalized it with the cops and politicians that we've been arguing in the decade before we're now all heading up uh different uh corporate cannabis uh, companies you know and they thought they were just going to be able to take it over but people continued in canada to largely buy underground uh, black market marijuana from the same people they were buying before legalization. And this cause has caused a lot of these corporations to fold and lose millions of dollars. And so now the government, you know, who still wants to be able to collect their, their tax revenue from the industry is kind of opening up more to craft scale cannabis industry, which is kind of like the craft bar industry. Uh, uh, beer industry right you know and yeah. uh, I'm, I'm expecting that would uh, be the kind of the way it's going to go now and then you're going to start seeing more quality cannabis coming off of farms and things like that small family farms you know that sort of thing yeah i'll tell you uh jamie and i drove to colorado in 2016 as a kind of uh you know young vacation to get to uh the the holy land of cannabis you know because at the time in from connecticut it wasn't yeah. legal so we were just like let's go check it out we went and explored and checked out all the dispensaries and there were definitely some differences there were the craft dispensaries and then there were the more corporate dispensaries but then in 2018 in massachusetts when they legalized it there 
I noticed that there were two companies that kind of ran the market and it's exactly as you described. It's radiated, it's dry, it powders up and it's not that resinous organic real living flower anymore. And yeah. Yeah. And I, I really wanted to get your take on that because you have so much experience with the plant, but getting back into the, the subject at hand, when was the, cause there's recently an archeological find, right? Cannabis resin on an altar in a uh, place in, in the middle East. Right. And what's in the Jerusalem. name of, yeah. in Jerusalem, Arad, Jerusalem, Arad, okay. Jerusalem from the eighth century BC. Wow. So is that the farthest back placement in time for cannabis is that does that push the timeline furthest back or is there oh there's older stuff there's you know older? like there's like similar timeline stuff coming out of china uh, ranging from like about 800 bc to 500 bc wow. with the gushi culture in china which is an indo-european culture that was in central china from about 2000 to uh, um, 400 BC when the indigenous Han Chinese chased them out of the area. And they found cannabis at a number of uh, Gushi tombs uh, in the form of uh, cultivated female cannabis uh, um, that had been you know, broken up. That was in a basket, about a pound of it, very well preserved because it's very dry and cold in this region, as well as a, uh, a, a body that was uh, put to rest with whole cannabis flowering female buds strewn over the body. And then after that, uh, there was a find of braziers uh, with rocks in them in which uh, cannabis had been thrown on the hot rocks. And this is very similar to the, uh, and this is like 700, 800 BC. Uh, this is very similar to uh, Scythian finds of uh, cannabis uh, in, in uh, Siberia and other regions. Uh, where we find uh, tent-like structures with uh, bronze braziers, in this case, but with rocks, cannabis was thrown on them and used in an identical way. And in both cases, this was used in a funerary ritual. And there's also a site in Romania going back 5,000 years where burnt cannabis seeds were found at a, a site of a, a burial. And it's believed that this is evidence of this same funerary rite, right? So we're talking about a uh, funerary ritual, pretty widespread because going into China, into the different areas where all these different numbers of Scythian burials, you know, all over the place for these Scythians and cannabis finds and going all the way back to about, you know, 5,500 uh, years ago. And then there's also the case of uh, cups uh, from the Scythians, gold cups, uh, found at Scythian sites that tested positive for residues of uh, cannabis and opium, right? So that's pretty old evidence, you know, and that's archaeological. Um, I'd say, you know, like the, the evidence out of Israel is more interesting because of the testing of the cannabis involved. You know what I mean? These earlier finds, they find things like burnt cannabis seeds, and that's the proof, right? You know what I mean? Some residues and stuff like that. The later stuff, like, you know, these early, like, say, Scythian finds and the find in Romania, right? Um, but now this new material coming out of China with the Gushis and out of Israel uh, at the temple site, they're able to do, you know, more of a profile of the cannabinoids and see, you know, that what it is, you know, more potent. It's not like hemp or something like that. This is like, you know, potent cannabis, you know. Now, I've been suggesting that uh, cannabis was used by the ancient Hebrews, for more than a quarter century. Uh, um, I based this largely 
on the work of an earlier Polish etymologist and anthropologist, Sula Bennett, who uh, first in 1936, she suggested that the Hebrew term cannabosum uh, was a reference to cannabis and that this occurred a number of places in the uh, Old Testament. And I uh, looked at that research and I spent a number of years trying to understand these references in the context of the biblical storyline and the uh, evidence in Arad fits seamlessly on, uh, all, in all perspectives with this uh, uh, etymological research, right? So I see it as validation of this earlier research. And it's a pretty radical, it's a pretty radical story, you know. In the, in the first of these references in Exodus 30.23, uh, God commands Moses to make a holy anointing oil uh, mixed with about a gallon of olive oil with myrrh and cinnamon and uh, um, Cassia, you know, remember, you got to remember in the story when when Moses first meets God, it's within flames of fire from within a burning bush, right? <laughs> it's kind of symbolic. Uh, and uh, so he's commanded to make this holy anointing oil. And every time he is to speak to the Lord, he's to go into what's called the tent of the meeting, this enclosed structure, kind of like the Scythian tents, which were little teepee-like structures. They bring the brazier in to contain the smoke. So it's an enclosed structure. And um, he burns incense on the altar, and then he places some of this anointing oil with this cannabosum, and, and, and he speaks to the Lord in the pillar of smoke over the altar of incense, right? And so that's the, that's the only time he talks to God, is when God's burning on that altar, and he's coming up with a pillar of smoke. And the other Israelites know that Moses is talking to God when smoke's pouring out of the tent of the meeting. So it's kind of like a holy hot box. And now... Most Bibles translate this word cannabosum, Hebrew word cannabosum, as uh, calamus or fragrant cane. And Sula Bennett contended that uh, when the Hebrew texts were translated into the Greek, that there was a mistranslation, and the term for cannabis was mistranslated as, as the term calamus. And um, this mistranslation carried over into later. Uh, translations, the Latin and King James, blah, 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 and brings us to this modern situation, right? Um, but when you take a look at the Assyrian word for cannabis, kanabu, and the, the phonetic similarities, and the identi identical way that it was used, uh, likewise in anointing oils and incenses, uh, um, and, and it's pretty clear that it's the same term, and now we have this archaeological evidence confirming that there was, in fact, being cannabis being burnt inside the temple thing. And so this is radical because what it does is it turns Moses into kind of like a shaman who, like shamans in South America or Africa today, uses a plant with psychoactive properties and interprets that as some sort of possession or divine communication, right? And in that respect, I think this material is a much a threat to fundamental religion as Darwin's theory of evolution was to the myths of creation in Genesis, because what it shows is the plant-based origins, shamanic origins of the religion itself, which is really ironic when you consider the role the Abrahamic religions have had with other cultures and peoples that have used psychoactive plants whether it being the inception of the Dark Ages, when the various Gnostic and pagan cults, which used entheogens, were suppressed into oblivion, or the Middle Ages, when witches were burnt at the stake, 
or through the discovery of the new world when peyote and mushroom ingesting cultures uh, were persecuted for pagan uh, rites and devil worship, you know. Uh, um, and now we find here in this time, the paradigm shift information that in fact, these prophets of the Bible were ingesting these same sort of psychoactive substances, the entheogens of the ancient world. Bravo. I, I think it's very suspicious to me that, you know, considering the research I'm doing with the Roman Empire and Josephus and propaganda and how they fit into, you know, kind of destroying Jewish culture and replacing it almost, right? And I wonder if they felt like this kind of messianic movement, which they were literally writing about that they were afraid of. And then Josephus comes along and says, well, Vespasian, Caesar, you'll be the Messiah. You're the true Messiah, right? So the Romans were obsessed with control the 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 middleman between the people and god right they always wanted to be this middleman and obviously entheogens are quite possibly the true middleman so to speak between us and divinity right it puts us in touch with our higher selves it puts us in touch with the creator and considering you know some of the work shown with like the bicameral mind and the stoned ape theory how do you think that factors in do you think that cannabis oh i'm absolutely it... down with uh, julian yeah. james i would say that the uh his book the origins of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind is has probably influenced me as much as any religious text that i've read it's yeah. one of my favorite books you know what i mean and i definitely you know like uh Say in Assyria, Babylonia, you take a look at the earliest uh, accounts of religion. These are like tutelary deities, and they represent your ability to think ahead and uh, plan so you're not like getting blown around by the wind. These were invoked by burning incense, you know. <laughs> um, I, I definitely think that, uh, you know, the, 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 the main receptor sites of the brain are in the areas of higher thinking and memory, you know what I mean? It stimulates consciousness into the thing. My view of the story of Moses is Moses goes into the tent of the meeting and he's, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And he looks, burns the incense and the can of balsam oil. And then a voice out of the smoke, but in his head, really, he says, this is what you must do. Tell the Israelites that we're going to do this. And then he goes out and says, this is what your God has said, you know. Yeah. It's, like, it's right in language, you know what I mean? Like genius is the same root as genie, uh, enthusiasm has to do with, uh, uh, um, the, you know, uh, uh, the God within, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, uh, um, muses, stuff like that. That's all an explanation for thought, you know. It took a while for humans to locate thinking in the brain man you know what i mean and then by the time we did it uh, we forgot about the origins of the whole thing and that the first people that were hearing the voices were rare commodities you know the shamans and people like that the prophets and stuff like that but then it came incorporated into all of us and became the eagle you know yeah and i it really makes you wonder if cannabis you know was truly integral to the human consciousness evolution. I think it was. I think that, uh, yeah. you know, the fact that we now realize that we have this endocannabinoid system running through our brain and nervous system, it's it's now being shown physiologically yeah. well, Dr. true. Dr. Jeffrey Guy of GW Pharmaceuticals and Dr. John McPartland, they have a great paper about the role of cannabis in the period of the Great Leap Forward. 
And the great leap forward is when humanity, you know, starts coming up with stuff like the wheel and fire and stuff like that. And they speculate that the, that the, the, the discovery of cannabis by mankind in that time period, you know, and this is like 50 to 100,000 years ago, uh, um, is what it, it, it possibly accelerated, right? And, you know, when we take a look at the archaeology for cannabis, it goes back close, you know, like there's evidence of hemp rope that is uh, uh, from like 24,000 years ago. Elizabeth Whale and Barber, probably the foremost authority on ancient textiles in the ancient world, uh, has pointed to tools that are used for uh, breaking the fibers from hemp stock that were like 28,000 years old. Carl Sagan speculated that hemp was likely humanity's first agricultural crop, you know? So uh, uh, conceivably, you know, considering the, the nutritious quality of the seed and ancient man's search for food, they would have come across it. Yeah. Yeah. And considering what we know about the axial age, all of those four great, you know, empires at that time were connected by this area where cannabis was being cultivated, right? The Scythians were some of the first people to have known to have been using cannabis and they existed in this Central Asian area. But, you know, going back to the kind of evolution of consciousness, we're told, you know, in classrooms and whatnot, that the Dark Ages was a time when, you know, art, culture were not evolving right that's what is kind of commonly thought now cannabis had its role in the dark ages or the middle ages am i wrong by that i mean there were figures like william uh Herdicourt, right is that his name yeah uh, yeah well that's like you know uh 13th century right you know what i mean so maybe coming out of the dark ages a little bit there's kind of like a line there somewhere you know what i mean like like say eight nine hundred it doesn't seem like there's too much going on uh, um, but once they go into the holy land then it's like really starts coming together and uh william uh von de honecourt there he had been in the holy land and you know he bought back the portfolio of architecture uh, uh, uh from the holy land and this is the same time period the templars were there right and the one page of text in there is this recipe for a cannabis infused wine so uh, um, this is still you. This is like a there's like a Masonic lodge in France named after this guy, and that's part of their you know history is this Masonic lodge book of Billy de Honecourt. Wow, knowing what we know about secret societies and their use of cannabis, it's my you know supposition that they were keeping this cannabis secret at that time. They're keeping it this tradition going in secret, and that's why it was able to. Uh, inspire so many of the great alchemists who we now think of as scientists we tend to forget the spiritual pursuits that they had but so many of these great thinkers happen to be using cannabis i mean you know, yeah. well, it's, it's a major part of the western hermetic tradition you know really the you know the western hermetic mag tradition of magic begins with the picatrix and the picatrix uh, is the Latin translation of the 10th century Arabic book of magic, the Gayat al-Hakim. And uh, in the 12th century, uh, King Alfonso of Spain had the uh, Gayat al-Hakim translated, and this became the Picatrix. And it's got like a, uh, a recipe in there for uh, a pound of a hashish mixed with stag blood and other ingredients uh, as an invocation for invoking the uh, 
the uh, angel, uh, the the servant of the moon, and you can see the servant of the moon in the pillar of smoke in this case, and it also has opium, mandrake, all sorts of hand, you know, all sorts of stuff, and there are all sorts of uh, psychoactive substances. And this is what got Agrippa and Paracelsus and a lot of these guys going was the uh, access to the Picatrix, and uh, you know, I've uh, there, there's been claims in a, a number of books, uh, strangely in books on aloe vera uh, a lot. Uh, that the Knights Templar had a cannabis-infused wine. It was cannabis and aloe vera in a palm wine. And I've come across this numbers of times. There was a, a German doctor who'd written, uh, not a German, Italian doctor who had uh, written uh, a history of uh, medicine and he had it in there. And so I was really digging around trying to find the source of this thing. I couldn't find anything earlier than 1990 making the claim and it didn't give a clear um, document from the time period on which it was basing this claim. So I can't verify that. Maybe there's something out there. But I went through a lot of material on the Templars from the time period uh, looking for stuff related to hoping to find that. And what I did find was that the Templars had Arabs uh, growing cannabis for them in Spain under contract. And uh, Arabs would not be people that you'd be going to for industrial hemp. They grew resin cannabis in the Arabic world, you know, and Spain's a good region for that. And they also, uh, when the Templars are arrested in both France and Spain, there's large lists of the items uh, that were seized from the Templar sites. And a large amount of cannabis in both cases uh, was seized, raw cannabis. Uh, I'm just listed as cannabis. If it was processed, you know, cloth or or something else, it would have been listed as such because they list all that stuff. And it's just listed as cannabis with no explanation. And so uh, I think there is a, a real possibility that the Templars may have picked up some sort of use of cannabis. Uh, the hope that was friendly uh, with the Templars, you know, they weren't always at uh, odds with the Catholic Church. Originally, they were a, an arm of the Catholic Church. And a Pope uh, during this friendly period uh, actually put out a book of medicine that had a recipe for a cannabis infused wine for medical purposes as well, right? And this is in the same century that Villar de Honecourt is in the Holy Land and then goes into, uh, returns to Europe with uh, the portfolio of Villar de Honecourt with that cannabis infused wine recipe, right? And so here we are in that century, we've got the Picatrix in this material. And then not long after this, we start seeing references in alchemical texts, particularly uh, in regards to what's uh, referred to in uh, spagyric alchemy, that's alchemy with plants, arcanums or quintessences. And we can find recipes with uh, cannabis in, in recipes for uh, quintessences in the works of Paracelsus, Cardano, uh, Avicenna, a Jewish alchemist, the Lullian corpus, and other texts as well. So it's pretty clearly used in this context. Yeah. You know, the the interesting thing about the Templars, the first time I ever encountered this topic, I actually encountered it through a video game around the age of like 15, 16, same time I'm smoking weed. There's a video game called Assassin's Creed, right? And I don't know if you're familiar with the first game, but they set you up with the old man on the mountain and you go through his assassin's cult and you kind of have this spiritual trip you wake up in this beautiful place and this woman comes to you and then you spend the rest of the series of the game fighting these templars in the modern age and in this kind of historical context through the video game and it was so 
esoteric the clues they fit into this game it really had an effect on me i think and i'm only really understanding it now but on spagyrics are you familiar with um a gentleman by the name of phoenix aurelius not offhand no sorry so he's been on tinfoil hat and a couple other podcasts as well as the higher side chats with greg and he's a modern day spagyrist right he's working right. with uh with plants and trying to make essentially quintessences and, cool. and I'd, I'd love to like send you a link so you can check out his work because i'm sure you'd sure. be curious about it but how uh how do you think that factors into this kind of new legal cannabis market? Do you think we're going to be seeing some real alchemical brews or it is all just going to well, be a like... guy, Warren G. He's definitely, you know, messing around with a lot of stuff. He's, you know, building equipment, alchemical equipment and uh, uh, trying mixtures. Uh, all the alchemists here in uh, Canada as well, you know, he's always messing around with that type of stuff. Um, you know, like basic, you know, basically a lot of these quintessences were like, um, they take wine, bury it, dig it up again, keep the clear water, get rid of the dregs, repeat that process like five times and basically get kind of an extracted alcohol. And then you would throw plants in there and let it absorb, squeeze it out. Once that's sort of get out, do it again, do it again until it's totally saturated, right? And uh, Paracelsus said, but through this method, you can increase the potency of plants like 20 times over, right? So I'm assuming even with European cannabis, uh, they would have been able to uh, uh, get something psychoactive using this sort of extraction method, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, it's basically just a tincture, you know what I mean? They're making a really, really strong alcohol and then uh, um, tincturing, but it, the, the, the quintessence was the fifth essence and the, the extracted alcohol was like considered to be a heaven. And when you put the plant into the alcohol, you're extracting the soul of the fifth essence, you know, uh, the soul into the alcohol, the heaven, and then you're throwing away the material body. And then you have the soul of the plant, the essence, the quintessence. You know. Rabelais, the 16th century monk and bachelor of medicine and alchemist, he incorporated uh, esoterically three chapters uh, of cannabis into his book, uh, Gargantuan Pantagruel, uh, under the name uh, the Herb Pantagruelian. There you go. And he called himself the master of the quintessence, right? And yep. it's pretty clear that uh, there was some esoteric use of cannabis. Uh, the whole Pantagruelian book is, is basically a parody of the grail myth uh, uh, filled with esoteric secrets and a making a mockery of church and state. But, uh, you know, Rabelais is the champ, man. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's said that he despised his fellow monks because he thought that they had no clue what they were reciting. They just recited it. And, uh, and yeah, he, unfortunately, you know, if he was honest and transparent, he would have been killed in those times. Yeah. So he, yeah, he wrote in this sort of language of the birds, right? And I've actually yeah. heard this language of the birds uh, from some research into John D and other more uh, modern alchemists, but can you speak to what the language of the birds is for those? Well, who... the, the, the term language of the birds comes from the Sufis, and it was a way of talking about things in a roundabout way, uh, um, using symbolic language, right? You know what I mean? It's said in the Attar's Conference of the Bird, the parrot, uh, um, whose beak comes sparkling with sugar, was a symbol for hashish. You know what I mean? And his his thing is what what's been written about it. 
Um, and so you use a symbolic language to avoid persecution. You got to remember at uh, this time period, a lot of this was taking place, uh, people being burnt as witches for heresy and alchemists were even persecuted. Numbers of alchemists were killed, right? You know what I mean? Anybody yeah. that was healing with plants instead of the Bible was paramount to being called out for heresy of some kind, right? You know what I mean? The only healing power was the healing power of the good book and God, you know? Uh, um, so uh, um, they had to be careful, you know? And so that's why even today, it's really hard to understand a lot of these alchemical texts because uh, we've lost what the symbols mean and, and we can only speculate to some extent. And, you know, in my book, Libra 420, I have some stuff that's really quite clear. Like when I'm talking about cannabis and quintessence as an arcanum, so I'm not making any interpretation of the, uh, 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 of the language of the birds there. There's actual references to cannabis, right? But when I get into things like uh, the green lion and some of these other alchemical references, uh, I'm, I'm speculating that, that cannabis may have been, been used in this context. I think there's a really good case for it. I try to lay out the really good case, but I really try to be clear on fact and speculation, you know? Yeah. So, you know, considering astrology in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries became kind of fashionable to some degree, right? What, because I've heard cannabis is Saturnian, right? And, and that may be I don't know, comes from the Scythians and their scythe, oh, right? No, this, is from, this is from guys like Culpepper and other guys that wrote astrological herbals in like the 18th century, right? And there's a few of them. Yeah. And uh, Cagliostro as well had a, a, a astrological chart and they all place cannabis under Saturn. Saturn's got an important uh, point, important symbolism in alchemy. It's kind of like the return point from the material to return back to the spiritual, you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, the base from which it starts. And there's all sorts of psychohembane, datura, cannabis, that are all just kind of placed under uh, Saturn, you know what I mean? Yeah. But other later astrologists in the 19th century, they, you know, some started placing here and there. I don't know where Crowley's got it on his 777. I, I forget. I don't think it's Saturn. It might be Jupiter or something. I forget. But I've seen other designations as well. But for the 18th, you know, uh, century, when a lot of these astrological herbals were were written, and and the most important ones, you know, Culpepper and some of the other ones I list in uh, uh, Libra 420, which I can't remember off the top of my head, it's clearly under Saturn. You know, yeah. now people could today, you know, based on their own analogy of the Kabbalistic tree of life and uh, the quality of the different planets and stuff, they, you know, they could make an argument for placing it differently based on the qualities compared to other things. You know, like I said, they just start lapped all the psychoactive plants on Saturn pretty much. You know what I mean? Actually, I think opium's under the sun. Uh, um, so they, not quite all, but a big whack of them, henbane, mandrake, cannabis, uh, a, a bunch of them. Yeah, I only bring that up because of uh, the kind of modern internet associations between Saturn and, and evil, right? Because you have this kind of black yeah. cube of Saturn, and then you also have the Well, there's more... stuff about cannabis and devil worship, you know what I mean? Well, that, and that's the, the what Lycos I... Levi's yeah. uh, that book of magic there, uh, in the same chapter of his famous uh, depiction of Baphomet, uh, there's a, uh, a recipe for a cannabis and opium-infused wine 
uh, that's for invoking the devil, you know what I mean? And uh-huh. a whole a whole recipe with a whole ritual written right in there for it, right? This caused a big uh, sensation in the 19th century when the tax seal hoax happened about uh, Freemasonry being satanic. And one of the things that tax seal was claiming is that Freemasons were initiating with such a cannabis infused wine. And it was all about uh, the worship of Baphomet, which is not really true of 19th century uh, Freemasonry. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and that's very helpful because I've noticed in this conspiracy podcasting field, there tends to be two camps. There tends to be the people who are kind of more extremist. You know, I won't name which religion, but they tend to be one religion and they tend to, you know, chalk every conspiracy up to the devil, you know? So it is important to clear that up because I think cannabis has way more associations with divinity than it does with any sort of Luciferian or satanic anything. And we just had a yogi on the podcast uh, on our last episode. Well, after this comes out, it'll be a few episodes back, but he mentioned that, you know, cannabis is considered a part of their divine practices, but it's not. Cannabis and yoga go way back, you know, Pat and Jow, even in his, uh, the yoga sutras of Pat and Jow, he said some of the uh, cities could be achieved with herbs, you know what I Mm. mean? And he's likely talking about cannabis when, when he's making that mention, you know, and there's references to to cannabis being used by yogis uh, going back millennia, you know, centuries, you know, the yeah. middle tenth century for sure. You know, there's texts that refer to its use and uh, um, specifically for, for for yogic purposes. And you know, you could go to the the Ganges, India today, and you'll see sadhus having a chillum in honor of Lord Shiva, the god of yoga. His favorite plant is cannabis. And uh, sit down and do their yoga kasanas, you know what I mean? And so it's always been a part of it. It's not like necessarily all yogis follow that path, but it's it's been there. And Shiva, the god of yoga, is the god of cannabis. He's the lord of bong, uh, the cannabis. So the associations, like undeniable. Yeah, and he he mentioned that he also mentioned that yoga was for cleansing. So he said he doesn't always smoke with cannabis uh, with yoga. But I know that you've said that the Rig Vedas, right, which inspired a lot of the Hindu and Buddhist culture in India, um, has mention of soma, right? Yeah, well, there's like a lot of debate about soma. Soma is the sacred beverage of uh, Vedic India. The Vedic India, the general view is that Assyria uh, uh, Aryans or Indo-Europeans brought this religion into India and they dominated for a while and then uh, bred, you know, uh, inter- intermixed with the, the local culture. And this has brought us our modern day scene in India. And yeah. it's also identified with Hayoma in the Avestan culture. And we know that these two uh, uh, regions and religions grew out of the same earlier belief system and culture because of the similarity of the names of Hayoma and Soma but also the similarity in myth, myths and words and language in their texts. And uh, it was a sacred beverage which was pressed and consumed in, in a drink. There's a lot of debate about it. And largely, uh, the work of R. Gordon Watson has dominated this field in the suggestion that there was a, a fly agaric mushroom at the core of this. And I dispute Watson's theory as I lay out in my book, Cannabis and the Soma Solution, I lay out all the different reasons why I disagree, and I suggest that in the origins of the cult, that cannabis was originally used, and that later uh, this identity was lost and replacements came into play. My view is 
is uh, we were talking about some of the archaeology involved here, and uh, we were talking about the Gushi culture in China, an Indo-European culture, uh, where we've got all that evidence of cannabis. And they also used ephedra. We know this from finds of ephedra in this area as well. Well, a Russian archaeologist, Victor Sarianati, he claimed that at, uh, three temple sites in the Bactria Margiana archaeological complex, uh, which is in Afghanistan, a region of Afghanistan, uh, that there were these three temple sites and half of each of these temples was dedicated to making this sacred beverage, this uh, Heoma or Soma as it was called, and uh, that the evidence there points to ephedrine cannabis and in some cases ephedra cannabis and poppy. Now he based this on seed imprints and then uh, material found in basins on the site that uh, he said with his team showed evidence of these substances, right? Um, now his stuff has been a source of debate. Other people say the seed impressions uh, were another seed, but I've looked at them and I, I do a big analysis and compare them to cannabis seeds and cannabis seed size. And I think I make a good case that it's actually cannabis. And the, the material that had the residues in it, it sat out in the sun. Like he hasn't got a big budget, like a lot of uh, Western archeologists you know, out of Russia, right? The whole system's kind of not really geared for that type of stuff. And so they got stuff sitting out in the sun. And when it was sent off to be tested for a verification by somebody who had questions about it, they were unable to reproduce the results. But uh, people who looked at what uh, the images from the original results say that it looks like the, 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 they were correct. But there's been debate about that. So that's a question of debate. However, we found artifacts from this site in China in this same place, the Bactria Margiana archaeological complex where the temples were found. So they were in trade, right? Now, one of the names of the Scythians that people called them was the Heoma Varga. And this means the Heoma gatherers. They're basically trading between the two regions. And we find a fedra up in there as well, right? And then we've got the cannabis and the fedra and cannabis and the fedra in both sites, right? And then in the goblets uh, that were discovered, the golden goblets, the Russian archaeologists say that these were goblets for drinking Heoma based on what they think about them, right? You know what I mean? And they tested cannabis and opium. This was also found at the site, right? So I think that this helps the claims of uh, Syrianity and uh, um, builds the case archaeologically for cannabis. But there's also a uh, etymological case to be made here as well. And people have made it without this archaeological information that I'm discussing. Uh, etymologists and linguists like uh, Mandy Hassan have suggested that the Chinese term for cannabis, huma, which means fire cannabis or Scythian cannabis, and is directly in reference to what these Gushi guys were doing, uh, became Heoma as this product was exported out of this region. And we see at this time period, like there's earlier history of cannabis in China, it been used for quite a while, right? A lot of hemp products, medicines, stuff like that. But right around the same time period that the Gushi were in China, this is when Taoists pick up the magical use of cannabis. And they're calling it under the same sort of terms that we see for Soma and Heoma, the plant of immortality. There's very much some other similarities in, in mythology there, right? And so through further linguistic changes, as it goes out of this BMAC region into India and Heoma becomes Soma, all this stuff carries over. And then what happens is, is 
uh, through political upheaval of the world, agent world and stuff like that, uh, the Silk Road starts to get blocked off in certain areas. And the, you know, cannabis isn't indigenous to India. They can tell this by soil samples and stuff like that, right? And originally, it was an imported product, the Aryans were imported. And this is all the story of Soma, is the importation of it. And when you read about the time period of the disappearance of it, it's all just getting to be lesser and lesser quality, more and more expensive, until it's just, you know, finally they're used in substitutions and fuck it. <laughs> yeah, it certainly made its way around the world with uh, virility. I have no doubts about the debate, I'm confident in your position. I think that as time goes on, more evidence will come out to support this. But circling back to the more modern stuff, we mentioned Freemasons earlier. And I was really struck by your recent interview on Chris Milligan's new podcast. We had Chris Milligan on our show. He's a great guy. He actually published your two most recent books. And one of the things that really struck me, because I know you know, movies and Hollywood are really kind of, you know, imbued with a lot of magic. You know, there's a lot of occult symbology. And you said that the phantasmagoria, which involved cannabis as an incense, right, was... Uh, Well, drink or incense, you know, there's a couple different ways it was probably used. Other plants as well, possibly. Yeah. And that was kind of like the beginning of what we would consider film, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, basically, uh, there's this guy, Schopenhauer, who was a uh, Scottish Rites uh, Freemason, and uh, other figures like Eckhart, Eckhart Chaucer. And they had uh, they would use what we call uh, magic lanterns. And they were basically <coughs> primitive slide projectors. They paint the slides, no cameras, right? You know what I mean? And then they would use the light from inside and project it out, and they blast it into some smoke or something like that. And they got pretty sophisticated with it. They could have like a slide with multiple things like you could pull the, this slide this way and then the eyes would go from side to side and a little piece this way and then the mouth opens up right and so um this guy uh schopenhauer uh, not schopenhauer i'm trying to think of the guy's name here johann george schropfer and carl okay. von eckhart Chaucer are the guys that i'm talking about okay and um what uh, Sh- uh, uh, uh schropfer who was a freemason would do uh, um, is he he had these rituals you know invite people they drink a punch and then they go in and he do these complicated rituals there'd be all this smoke and stuff like that and then all of a sudden a figure would appear in the smoke and all these magic lanterns were you know hidden in different areas and then he's got servants in other rooms making voices and stuff like that and these people are thinking that they're seeing actual they're starting to get high off of the whatever they've been given you know what i mean cannabis seems likely in this case it's been suggested because uh he owned coffee houses and coffee and cannabis traveled together in this time period coffee and hashish right uh but you know things like hembane and stuff like that might have been burning in there as well who knows and just as people are getting high and they had been taken up with this ritual, all of a sudden in the smoke, images and faces are starting to appear. And they could even move and talk and answer questions and things like that. And people were quite convinced that they had seen ghosts and shit like that, right? And then even after it was exposed as a fraud, some people were like, well, I fucking love that shit, man. I don't care. I'm going again. You know what I mean? And it became kind of a sideshow thing after that. 
And, you know, the evidence for this is that it goes back quite a while. There's like uh, uh, illustrations of these sort of magic lanterns uh, going back to the 14th century and accounts of people using them to like scare a sinner you know, by showing them a devil out their window or something like that right and uh john d uh when he was a student he he was making elaborate uh um stage mechanisms and stuff like that that people were quite convinced were magic as well right but uh, my view is his d was taking drugs right like uh, you know he, in regards to mirror scrying in the 16th century uh there's uh, at least three grimoires that prescribe cannabis for mirror scrying uh, sephiraziel liber salamanas uh, the Book of Oberon, and uh, the Cunning Man's Grimoire. And they all have recipes for anointing oils with cannabis mixed with various other plants, uh, depending on the grimoire, for seeing devils and spirits in mirrors, right? And this is right around the time, same time period, like contemporary with Dee and Kelly, right? And so they would have had access to these grimoires. It's just the type of material they're looking for. These were English grimoires, right? And in uh, the uh, uh, actions, as he calls them, of... Uh, uh, that they were performing when they were talking into mirrors. There's this whole scene that they record where uh, Kelly's talking to uh, uh, an angel in the mirror and the angel's like, well, but you haven't brought any drugs. And Kelly opens up his apothecary box and goes, look, my apothecary box is empty. And then it goes, well, don't you have any ointments or anything? <laughs> and uh, really, you know, in my opinion, this is Kelly pumping fucking uh, uh, D to get some more drugs, right? And, you know, uh, in another one, he, he's like given a liquid that makes him drowsy. It sounds very opium-like, right? And this is the same thing. You got to remember this time, Paracelsus, you know, is not long before these guys. And they're influenced by uh, uh, one of the Paracelsus's students. Uh, I can't think of the guy's name right now, but another alchemist. They really influenced by him, right? Uh, but Paracelsus was like an opium user. Laudanum was his philosopher's stone. And his uh, servant said that he invoked devils with it and shit, right? You know? And I imagine, you know, like they didn't even know about shit like uh, getting addicted to dope back then. And so uh, uh, my view of Paracelsus and his, uh, you know, his philosopher's stone is like, he takes it and ah, I feel good, you know, and then he starts Jones and when it's gone and, oh, my power is fading. And then he takes a bit of opium, ah, he comes back to life. Ah, yes, I'm back in action again. I've had my philosopher's stone, you know, and, uh, likely if they were using opium at all, Dean and Kelly, which is just as likely as cannabis here, and probably even more likely in, in the accounts uh, that I have there uh, of the, drinking the liquid that makes him drowsy. Uh, you know, he may well have been jonesing and trying to get, get D to pick him up stuff. Not to say that uh, psychoactive substances can't throw you into a mystical state where you might be able to get some information that you wouldn't otherwise be able to obtain. Absolutely, yeah. And we see this theme throughout all of the world's religions for the most part you know yeah. even in indigenous cultures whether they had cannabis or not they were finding entheogenic plants i mean what uh what do you think of the ayahuasca have you have any thoughts on ayahuasca and the whole thought on you know, the natives say that the plants told them to combine these two different plants and then it created this DMT inhibiting effect, which released all this yeah, DMT. Yeah, it's pretty wild that they were able to, you know, in the jungle, figure out the combination here of an MAOI and DMT containing plant to do it, you know, and uh, there's no denying indigenous uh, uh, cultures 
uh, relationship with the flora and fauna around them. You know what I mean? Pharmaceutical companies send people down there to camp out with these people and follow them around the jungle and collect samples and look for the active ingredients in relation to what they've learned, basically stealing these people's uh, uh, cultural heritage, you know what I mean, and economy uh, in many cases. And you, they got to kind of control this stuff, right? Yeah, I don't know. It's powerful stuff. You know, people have really definitely very powerful, powerful experiences on on ayahuasca it's powerful medicine man it's uh you know if some somebody wants to get into it make sure you do a lot of research before you 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 start down that path absolutely are there any stories like this with cannabis where there was a sort of calling from the plant to a certain person like uh particular figures in history i know you said moses obviously you know what i mean like moses there with the burning bush and the cannabossum uh in in zoroastrian accounts uh um, they would, uh, figures like Ardu Viraf and Vistaspa would drink uh, cannabis-infused wines. In Ardu Viraf's case, he goes to the afterworld and sees visions of heaven and hell. And these are filtered over into Christianity, yeah. uh, his ideas of vision and hell. It's a cannabis-inspired. <coughs> Zoroaster's first convert, uh, King Vistaspa, was said to have been uh, brought over to the faith by drinking some uh, cannabis-infused wine and uh his visions of the uh, end of the world uh, when they were translated into the Greek and became the Oracle of Hystaspes were prohibited literature in ancient Rome uh, because they predicted its downfall and they served the basis and inspiration for the book of Revelation. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, um, there's all sorts of, you know, of people that have felt the spiritual calling or a message from, from the divine uh, under the effects of cannabis, myself included. And that's how I got on this path, you know. Uh, um, and let me tell you a story of like 30 years ago when I was a surfer on the west coast of uh, Vancouver Island living in a small fishing village. And uh, um, a series of events took place, which led me to be sitting right here before you right now and is a source of my four books and dozens of articles and lectures and blah, blah, blah. And uh, the first of these events was uh, involving the Catholic Church. It was a real big scandal here involving an orphanage, Mount Cashel Orphanage. And uh, kids had grown up that had gone there. And we're talking about priests molesting them. And I wasn't brought up with religion myself. My mom was more of the tea leaves and astrology type. And I was, but I still kind of accepted the general mythology of the Bible just because of all the cultural influences, Christmas, Easter, that sort of stuff, horror movies with the cross and the vampires and just kind of accepted that that was the way it was when I was a kid you know um and uh so I thought well I'm going to read the bible and see what this stuff's about because it's certainly not about fucking molesting kids and there's a lot of this going on with these guys and I started reading it and I just couldn't get into it so and so begat so and so blah blah and I stuck it in this night watchman of this fish plant that I worked in in the office there and forgot about it coinciding with that um, a friend of mine taped this documentary on the industrial uses of hemp. And at that time, the term hemp had been you know, forgotten here in Canada. We didn't even know about any of this industrial stuff. This is like 89, right? And uh, um, I, he told me, oh, you can make all your paper out of it. You can make all your... And I was like, no, 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 man. I, I taught you how to grow pot. You don't tell me this shit, man. What are you talking about? And then he showed it to me. And I was like, whoa. And I started looking it up. And sure enough, there was this whole history and uh um and then where i lived was in logging town in fact my brother was the uh camp chairman for the union for the loggers and there's this whole big controversy 
about the logging of the uh, last old growth coastal rainforest, Clackwood Sound that was taking place. And I started thinking, oh, maybe hemp could, you know, we could get into hemp, we could save jobs, we could do this, right? And uh, um, then also coinciding with this was, was the Gulf War. And Saddam Hussein had fired this Scud missile into Israel. And because of this, people were comparing him to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, uh, the last king of Babylon. In fact, Babylon and Iraq are in the same spot. And uh, uh, Saddam was trying to restore the ancient gardens of Babylon. And so one night I was sitting in this fish plant about three in the morning, smoking a thumb-sized joint of some great cannabis I grew back then, and uh, uh, reading the newspaper. Back then, there's no internet, so TV and stuff like that all the time, just the stuff we're in, in the newspapers, right? You know. And I look and I see there's an advertisement for a sermon. I think it was Pat Robertson. And the sermon was Revelations 18, the fall of Babylon. And he had picture behind him, tanks and jets. And I was like, holy fuck, these fucking guys are tying in the book of Revelation with this Gulf War that's going on now. And uh, when I was a kid, I'd seen the Omen, you know, and they were like, it just always stuck with me, like the apocalypse and the beast and the 666 and coming close to the end of the millennia. I think it was just in the air, you know, there's Jehovah Witnesses in the fish plant I worked at. I'd ask them about the apocalypse. So I thought, well, I'm going to read the fucking up book of revelation right now you know when i go into i get this old book of uh, the bible that i had in there and I, I begin reading it and john he begins to you know he, he, at the beginning of the story he's getting a scroll and he puts it in his mouth it tastes as sweet as honey and then it turns bitter in his stomach and he begins to prophesize and i'm like what the fuck did john eat <laughs> and uh, i get a little further on and it's like they were wearing clothes of sackcloth and they were given much incense to offer. And the incense contained the prayers of the saints. And I was like, fuck, man, that's fucking trippy shit. And I got to the very end of the Bible. And uh, um, it said, on either side of the river of life stood the tree of life, bearing 12 manners of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And when I read that, I had this fucking experience where I felt like light just fucking beamed into me. And that this was a reference to cannabis and all these different fruits were its industrial applications that we could use to heal our planet and heal ourselves. And uh, um, I called my wife up and she thought I was having some sort of fucking breakdown, you know, and she started fucking bawling. Next day I go home and I wake up and I'm looking at all these clear cut mountains and I'm thinking, was there anything to that or was I just fucking tripping out? And I thought, well, this hemp stuff, for sure, man, that's legit. And I'm going to start this group, Patriotic Canadians for Hemp. I'm going to start promoting hemp. And that's the first thing going here on the West Coast, right? And I thought if there was anything to this religious stuff that I experienced about the tree of life, then somebody somewhere else will have, you know, had some sort of experience like I had. And so I started this slow process and I'm like a high school dropout, man. I'm not, I wasn't like, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't come to this through years of academic study, man. And my, I try to make my book stand up to academic study, mind you, you know, and I take an anthropological perspective when I write things, but uh, um, uh, it's all been out of that experience. And I'm saying to you 30 years down the road, four books later, uh, dozens of articles with archaeological evidence backing up what I saw that something happened there, man. I was somehow channeled some sort of information that I just didn't had no way of knowing. I mean, given a mission of uh, of uh, re cloaking this sacred plant with the myths of the past, you know, and uh, that's what I've been doing. Wow, 
Yeah, man. And I got to thank you because your work is very inspiring. I didn't know, you know, most of that story about you starting this hemp movement, so to speak. And well, and you that's know, amazing. Jack Harris started the hemp movement. He, he, he wrote the, uh, no, but in your, in your local area, in though, area I mean, yeah, 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 that's, that's yeah, what I mean, because that's so, I mean, I, you know, one thing I did too, I was the first person to commercially sell hemp seed food. I had this company, Mama Indica's Hemp Seed Treats that I ran all through the 90s. And I exported those things everywhere, you know, and kind of the same thing happened with hemp as, as happened with uh, cannabis flowers is once it became legal, the big money came in and just took <laughs> over and pushed out little guys like me. But yeah. I, I do have that historical first there as well. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Another another new thing to me. But I will say your book, I, you know, I would have never guessed that your, you know, high school dropout from reading your book, man, it definitely stands up to academic standards for sure. I myself am a college dropout. So right. it's extremely inspiring to to know that you know, 777 pages, like for those who are just listening right now, please go buy this book. It's worth your time. And I know I've been into this conspiracy kind of spirituality history world for a while. And a lot of folks smoke cannabis in this kind of area, you know, it's it, the two go hand in hand, I think. So yep. it's Always just, been that way. yeah, Absolutely. Jay, Adam, I usually open it up uh, to you guys at the end here. Do you have any questions? If not, it's okay. No pressure. Uh, no, I'm all set. I mean, I just enjoyed listening there. I think it's re just really cool. Uh, nice um, resource to have, uh, Chris, just like compiling all this information for people because of course, yeah. you see like this set of kind of duality with marijuana like people using it for this nice div divine purpose but then also people just using it and not really getting anything out of it but for people like me and mark and now adam recently <coughs> right. to sort of like have this historical evidence and back up to kind of like uh Validate, validate yeah. yeah validate everything exactly it's just a nice well, resource that you're giving people and you bring up a great point because i think in our modern kind of pop culture weed has been uh commercialized to the point where it has become a meme to the sense and i've always fought against that stigma you know since i started smoking cannabis i've always tried to portray myself as intelligently as I could, because I knew people knew how much I smoked. So I thought to myself, well, I have to show people that, you know, this stuff doesn't make you dumb, because I've always known I was smart, you know, so and and kudos to you, Chris, because you've done that three, four, five times over with your awesome books. And I'm, I'm really excited to, to see the new one when it comes out. I know we didn't really get to talk about Crowley at all today, but I'd love to have you back on to, yeah, to maybe sure. dedicate some time to a whole episode on Crowley. Yeah, always lots to talk about in the subject of uh, cannabis and religion. This was like the tiny tip of the uh, iceberg. Yeah. And <laughs> we did leave. There. I don't even think we talked about Jesus. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, of course, that's another great, that's how your book starts. And we did leave out a lot of, uh, of great points from your book. I mean, you touch on so many parts of history that it would have been hard to squeeze them all in one hour, but we don't want to do that. We want to give people a little bit of a reason to buy the book too. Obviously they already have a, 
a hundred. I know when I first heard you on the higher side chats, I went online immediately afterwards and bought your book. So you sold oh, me cool. there, but uh, you're doing a great job, Chris. And I love working with you, man. This has been really great. Okay, cheers. Yeah, we'll talk again sometime. Take care, brother. Take nice care. Nice meeting you all, man. Yeah. Okay. Have a good one. Mark is bananas. Crazy. Okay, this guy's losing his mind. I Don't listen crazy to him. Follow us on Patreon.com slash MFTIC. That's Patreon.com slash MFTIC.